so many of us feel like we have to climb the corporate ladder as fast as we can so that hopefully we can retire with a bunch of money and then go off and live the life that we really want to live. Why can't we live a life that we love now and bring our work with us? Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshovsky, and welcome to episode 42 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by none other than Corbett Barr, the founder and CEO of Fizzle.com, one of the largest communities for lifestyle business entrepreneurs on the internet. Not only has Corbett been doing this for as long as lifestyle business has been a concept, but he has also worked with some of the biggest names in online business like Pat Flynn, John Lee Dumas, Chase Reeves, Caleb Wojcik, and Nathan Barry from ConvertKit, just to name a few. During this interview, we discuss how he has been able to build such an amazing network of peers, how a sabbatical in Mexico helped him go from a depressed Silicon Valley entrepreneur to starting a small blog, which he then grew into a six-figure coaching business. We also discussed how Netflix served as an inspiration for Fizzle, how to work with, manage, and nurture entrepreneurial personalities in your own business, something which was really, really interesting to me, and Corbett's top tips for working remotely. Guys, seriously, this is an episode that is filled with so much gold, and I really, really think you guys are going to love it. Before we dive into the interview, please head over to your favorite podcasting app and leave the show an honest review if you haven't already. This is the best way for you to show your support. And in fact, I'm really excited because we have had a number of people leaving reviews over the last few weeks and it shows in the charts because this show, you guys, is starting to rank in charts all over the world. So thank you, thank you so much to everyone who has left a review already. You guys are the bee's knees and seriously, thank you guys so much. As always, you can find the show notes and all the resources we mentioned in this episode on the website over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 42. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 42. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Corbett Barr. All right. Well, Corbett, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for coming by. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm super pumped to have you on because uh, we met actually through your membership, uh, Fizzle, which I was a part of for a little bit last year. Uh, And so I really look forward to talking to you about starting Fizzle and your journey through business because I don't know if you're aware of this, but I feel like any kind of like quote unquote influencer or or anybody who is well-respected in business somehow tends to know you or you know them, which is really funny. Do you, how did that, do you have any idea how that happened very quickly? Like, do you, have you just been doing this for so long that it just naturally happened or did you have a plan for that to end up being the case? Uh, yeah, I think it's just because I'm old. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. <laughs> older, older than most these days. Um, because I've, I've been self-employed, um, since 2005 now, which is, uh, coming up on 15 years and um, really in the 
very early days of this whole like, you know, being able to earn a living online and to live anywhere. Uh, I was just connecting with a lot of people out there who at the time maybe didn't seem like they were necessarily going to be like big names, A-list names in this space. Um, but a lot of them turned out to be. So it's just it's just kind of a matter of having attended a lot of conferences um, and met people through the years. And fast forward, you know, 15 years and eventually you get there. Yeah, whoever stuck out with it, you know, 15 years, they got to have something behind them to like push them for 15 years. So you, you kind of pass through the filters. Um, but to, to bring you back to 2005, um, something funny that I read about you and doing research about this was that we talked about before we clicked, you know, record that we're both in Mexico currently. And I heard that one of the sort of the start of your entrepreneurial journey, so to say, actually started with a road trip through Mexico. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it was the start of my, um, I would say rebirth as an entrepreneur because originally I had, we were living in San Francisco and I was around the whole Silicon Valley culture. And my idea was, okay, I'm going to leave my job and start a business. But what I thought of starting a business at the time was where you worked 60 or 70 hours a week, you uh, built some sort of software, you raised money, you grew an office um, and tried to make a bunch of money so that then you could maybe retire young and then go do what you wanted to do in life. But from 2005 to 2008, I did exactly that. I built a startup. We had an office, employees, investors, a board of directors, um, and I had a co-founder. And at the end of the day, I ended up feeling like I had less control over my career and my life than I did when I was an employee because there was all this pressure. And um, the startup ended up not working out, which a lot of them don't work out. You know, the, the venture capitalists make a lot of bets and a couple of them pay off in their home runs. And then a lot of them just don't go anywhere. And the entrepreneurs are usually left with not much because you spend your whole time just trying to gain customers and you don't really focus on profitability and actually earning revenue. So when that flamed out. It was during the 2008 financial collapse, which, you know, was bad for a lot of people, but it happened to be bad for us as well. After it flamed out, I felt like I was burned out. I was unsure of what I wanted to do next. And instead of just jumping into the next thing, I wanted to clear my head and hit the reset button. So my wife and I, uh, here I was, I guess, around 30 years old at the time. And um, we decided to take a sabbatical, something that we'd wanted to do uh, for a long time. So we packed up our car and set south across the border into Mexico. Mexico is always this romantic thing for me because it's our closest neighbor and we know so little about it when you grow up in the United States. So we thought, let's go spend some time there. We'd only ever been to a couple of resort towns and, and hadn't really explored. So driving through Mexico for six or seven months with our dog and um, just stopping in all kinds of different places, we learned and saw a lot. And on that trip, I really had planned to set aside enough time to reevaluate my my work and my life and how the two kind of tied together and um, to figure out what I wanted to do next. So while you were on this trip and you were kind of like giving yourself time to, to think about 
you know, what you wanted to do next. I think that that's kind of a common thing. Like a lot of, I hear a lot of people, especially those that are like, I mean, I'm 26. So saying like younger, like, I mean, people who are like kind of like just getting started, they do say that like they go to travel to find themselves, quote unquote. Um, but a lot of times that's not necessarily successful, right? Like you go out, you travel, and then you come back five, six months later and you're right back where you started. Did you have some sort of like system or, I mean, you said that you left yourself enough time to think about it, but was there some sort of like organizational structure to make sure that at the end of that five, six months, you weren't going to be right where you started again? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is um, mindset. So uh, on the sabbatical, I mean, of course, I wanted to enjoy myself, but I also really wanted to come back with um, the the seedling of what my next thing was going to be. So I allowed myself, you know, a month or so to just relax and enjoy. And then I really started thinking diligently about what I wanted to do next. I was reading a lot. Um, I was exploring different things that were starting to happen online. This was around the time that um, Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, was really gaining steam. It was around the time that um, location independence and digital nomading were becoming terms that people cared about. And um, I started a blog, partly to chronicle our trip, but really to sort of ask myself questions out loud about um, the relationship between career and life and why so many of us feel like we have to climb the corporate ladder as fast as we can so that hopefully we can retire with a bunch of money and then go off and live the life that we really want to live. Why can't we live a life that we love now and bring our work with us, especially with the invention of uh, the internet and with everything just becoming so much easier to be portable. Um, but I didn't know exactly what that was going to be for me. So I started a blog kind of just to ask those questions. And um, it turned out that the more I asked and uh, the more that I relayed what I was learning, the more people were interested in that. And um, it turned out that a lot of people were kind of in the same place because so many were either out of work because of that big financial collapse that happened in 2008 or were graduating from college and just feeling like there weren't any traditional options for them, like they had to find something on their own. So uh, I really decided to put my head down and um, write about location independence, write about digital nomads, write about and try to find out how possible it was to live these kinds of lives that people were writing about, like Tim Ferriss. And, uh, you know, I just kept interviewing people and um, writing articles and eventually had a, a pretty decent following from that blog, which made me think, ah, maybe there's something here. What were you doing financially during that period? Because you had the sabbatical, you had just like left that startup that failed, you were on a sabbatical for half a year, and then decided to commit yourself to this blog. Now, you and I both know that like, you know, a blog's not going to make a lot of money right away. Yeah. So were you taking like consulting jobs or freelancing? Or did you have enough saved up from your previous endeavors that you could give yourself the time to focus on that fully? On the sabbatical, um, I don't believe that I earned any revenue from from the blog or anything else. I was really just focused on growing an audience. Uh, so we were living on savings. And being in Mexico has its advantages. It's a lot cheaper than being in the US. So your runway gets extended quite a bit. Um, but, you know, you asked earlier, like some people take these trips around the world to try to find themselves and they come back and they don't have anything to show for it. Well, I had not only, you know, the mindset 
um, and decided that I was going to spend the time really trying to figure it out. But also the pressure of living on savings can really get to you. And it was a good motivator for me. This was actually my second go around living on savings because when I got the startup off the ground initially, there was about a year where we were dipping into savings that I had earned from having a corporate career. And then the second time around, uh, we had sold a house and um, there was some you know, capital from that. So we were basically living off of that. And um, the clock was definitely ticking for me. I felt like I had to figure out something kind of quickly. What do you think about... Um... This is a conversation that has come up several times on this podcast between myself and guests, and specifically my friend Ian, um, Ian Hoyt from Life Nomading, who's been on here quite a few times, where we view that financial quote-unquote pressure differently, right? So mm-hmm. for him, that financial pressure gets the fire burning for him and he, and he gets moving. But for me, I find that having um, financial pressure really kills my creativity and even though it gets the fire burning, I'm constantly stressing about money and I don't like the, the juices aren't flowing. Is that something that you experience or do you just have that personality more like Ian where it just gets you moving and you don't get that, um, that those issues come up? And if you are stressed out about it, how do you manage that? So I think I'm more like you, um, but I've learned to deal with it Um partly because of mistakes that I've made and, and situations that I put myself in. I, I remember uh, the first time around after my co-founder, co-founder and I had been working on uh, startup software, we were going on like maybe you know, 10, 11, 12 months or something of trying to get funding for our idea. And I started to have, I thought I had health problems and it turns out it was just panic disorder and anxiety. And, you know, my, my doctor said, look, like you're a young guy, you've got to change your ways or this isn't going to go well for you. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be having this level of stress. So I, I started to understand that, um, that stress is real and that it can cause these sort of physical manifestations. The second time around, um, I did a couple of things. One was I got much more pragmatic about earning revenue and, uh, you know, every dollar that you earn makes you feel better about it because you, you feel like, okay, maybe there's a path here. Um, and, uh, the other thing was I just also got really clear about my financial picture. And I found that having a clear idea of, how much money you have in the bank, how much you're spending, how long your runway is. If you start earning money, make some estimates of what you think you'll earn and how that'll increase over time. And if you get a really clear picture about it, then it can take some of the pressure off. I think when there's just this big black hole that you're worried about, you know, financially, um, without putting any details on it, then it can seem a lot bigger maybe than it really is. Yeah, I found that uh, for myself too. Is I was um, I was working with an, I, it wasn't my FBA business, but I was working with somebody who was running a large FBA business. Uh, and for so uh, for those who don't know, that's a for sale by Amazon uh, e-commerce business, and that got sold. So I was literally told, "Hey, this is the last month that you're getting paid," and I almost didn't have the time to figure out what the next step was, and. After a month or two, after I'd had time to think about like what that next step was, suddenly it didn't feel as daunting uh, and as scary. But definitely for those like few months where I literally didn't know like 
like what was happening and what the next step was like, those were the darkest moments, you know, like ever. Um, so yeah, I think that you're, you're right on the money there in terms of like, you know, just knowing, like understanding the picture, you know, like you said, like, it's not just a black hole of like mystery and unknownness, you know, just kind of once you figure it out, you can take the next step. Now you, you know, at this point, you're talking about this blog and this I, I believe is not fizzle yet, right? No, no, not, not at all. It's, it's, we're still several years away from that. So, so what was the blog called uh, at that time? And then how did that lead into what you're now, I would say, known for the most, which is the Fizzle membership and the Fizzle podcast? Yeah. So um, this first year was really a personal blog. And, and you can see over at CorbettBar.com, you could look in the archives and, and see some of the stuff from way back when. Um, but as I was growing this audience, you know, people were following me because I was talking about location independence and digital nomading and so on. And it was fun to talk about, but I didn't know exactly how I was going to turn that into a product or a business um, because I didn't necessarily have all the answers for folks at the time. Right. And um, I wasn't sure how I would build a product and it just seemed too comprehensive trying to help people, you know, become location independent and, and so on. So I did basically a skills assessment and I said, okay, well, what am I good at? What have I done in the past? And what do people need who are in this audience? And a lot of the people in my audience also had blogs uh, at the time. Podcasting really wasn't a thing then. So blogging was the big focus and social media to some degree. And um, I had grown this pretty good sized audience. Uh, several hundred thousand people had visited my site in that first year and in my startup um, before, we also had grown a fairly large audience. So I had some experience with this. And I thought, you know, people probably um, would be interested in learning how to build an audience online, figuring that that's a good step towards location independence or building your own business. So um, I took a step back and decided to engineer a brand that was built around a blog where I knew exactly what I would be selling. And uh, at the time, that was online courses. So uh, the blog that I created was called Think Traffic. And basically, we just kept asking the question out loud, like, uh, why are a handful of sites really popular? And then the vast majority, millions and millions of sites go basically unnoticed. And uh, the premise was to basically help people understand what they needed to do to grow an audience online. And out of that, I conceived of a program I called Traffic School, which was um, a multi-week guided course and coaching experience that helped people go from zero to 3,000 visitors per month. And um, this was a bit of a higher priced course. And um, I spent maybe the first nine months or so blogging, building up that audience, growing my email list further. And in the background, I was putting together the material for this traffic school program. And then I eventually launched that and um, did really well with it. Uh, that was um, a six-figure course from the beginning, pretty much. And then I would open and close it several times a year and did that for quite a while. That's really So what you're saying is that even when you started Think Traffic, from the very beginning, you had the idea of what you wanted this course to be, and that's how you created the content, and that's how you decided what the next steps were? Yeah. Basically, uh, I thought of the product or the products that I would sell 
and work backwards from that. And um, blogging, you know, was was obviously uh, a really great way of growing an audience. And I had an idea that that would be involved, but I didn't want to uh, just start growing another audience and see where it went because I had done that already. And with the personal blog that was more just about, you know, travel and, and um, living a life of freedom, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, I found that I could offer coaching and so on. Um, and I did, but a lot of times people had all kinds of questions about their life. They were sort of existential sessions and I felt a little bit more like an armchair psychologist than I did a uh, business consultant, which is more what I saw myself as. So mm-hmm. by going, by niching down and being more specific, focusing on something that's, you know, really tangible and necessary, um, I was just able to hone in and focus all of my offerings. And um, that went really well. I, I, I didn't um, launch, as I said, the, the program uh, traffic school for, you know, maybe nine months or so. But in the interim, I was able to uh, do quite a bit of coaching, consulting, and uh, helping people with strategies for their website. And um, I started doing that kind of here and there. And I stumbled on a book at the time uh, called Book Yourself Solid. I was just kind of wondering to myself, like, well, how do I get more clients and how do I charge more and so on? And Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port, which you can buy on Amazon for like, you know, 10 or $20, um, really helped me overnight go from having a client here or there to literally being booked out three or six months with clients that were paying me a lot more than they had before. And primarily I was offering traffic strategy sessions. I would um, meet with somebody, evaluate their website, come up with a plan for them to grow their audience uh, and then help them implement that. And um, that kind of bridged the gap for me between, um, you know, growing my audience and email list that was big enough so that I felt like I could launch an online program um, and the beginning. And uh, that way I was able to get some pretty significant revenue coming in by consulting and, and offering strategy. I think that what you're describing is really interesting because it's almost the reverse of what I'd say 99% of people do, right? Is like there's you constantly hear about people who are starting a blog on X topic because they are passionate about that topic and that's what they want to do, but they're like if you ask them like how are you going to make money, a lot of times they say like, "Oh, I'll figure it out once my audience is big enough." And you kind of did the reverse where you said yourself you reverse engineered it and you said, "I want to sell X" And this is how I'm going to do it. And I think that's really interesting. And maybe something that more people need to adopt because I, I feel like it's a much more direct route to like, like reoccurring revenue and like an actual business. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I would say um, I'm, I'm a big fan of audience first. And in a way I was going audience first because I was building the blog before I had the product. I think if you if you go the opposite and build a product before you have an audience, then it's, it's sometimes a really tough road because you have to go out and figure out where you're going to get your customers from. But also, it's likely that you can build something that nobody wants in the end. So mm. by building an audience first, at least um, you can work with them along the way, You know, asking them questions, showing them things, figuring out if you are, in fact, building something that will be useful for people that they'll be willing to pay you for eventually. Um, but you're right. The, the key aspect there, I think is if, if you say, I'm going to build an audience and I'll figure it out once the audience is big enough. The question is like, well, when is the audience big enough? And a lot of people get stuck on that, 
hamster wheel of content production because it takes a lot to produce a good blog or a good podcast or and to stay on top of social media and everything else. So a lot of people kind of get just stuck in that. And I think they feel like, oh, you know, I'll slap some ads on there eventually or something. But very few people grow an audience large enough for that. So by kind of seeing the picture and asking yourself, well, okay, let's say I want to earn, you know, six figures a year. That's a goal for a lot of people. Well, if you want to do that, how many sales of a product that costs $99 are you going to have to make in that year or of a product that costs $9.99 or whatever it is that you think you're going to sell? And if you're going to sell, you know, X copies of that product, how many people do you need to reach in order to convert that many to buy that thing? And, you know, there, there's no like hard and fast rule, but there are definitely some uh, some ballpark figures that you can throw in there and kind of figure it out and, and figure out that, oh, okay, well, my email list needs to be 5,000 people or 10,000 people or something like that. And that means I'm going to have to have X number of people visiting my website every month. So that then you're working towards something and then you know, all right, once I get to this size, that's when I want to launch this thing. So I need to start building you know, ahead of time and so on instead of uh, just getting kind of mired in feeling like the audience always has to be bigger and bigger and bigger and uh, never really knowing when it's time. Yeah, this is something that um, my friend Ray Blakeney from Live Lingua talks about a lot. And it's almost kind of like frustrating because he runs a seven figure, you know, language learning business. And when you ask him, like, how did you do that? And he literally lays out that exact same, you know, like formula that you just laid out and said, once I figured it out, all I knew was, okay, how many people do I need coming to my website? And like, that's it. You know, he's like, it's that simple. They just find out how many you need to do and focus on that. Um, and I think that sometimes people make it more difficult than it has to be almost like there's so much information. There's so many things going on online that people just make it way more difficult than it has to be. How did you go from, you know, think traffic and what you're doing now to fizzle? How, what was the idea there? You know, you were already doing a six figure business, um, you know, selling courses, like how, like where did the idea for fizzle come from and how did you take the steps to make that happen? Yeah, I, I remember um, I was in Mexico. So my wife and I, we've we've come back to Mexico every year, um, pretty much uh, since that that first sabbatical in 2009. I'm in Mexico now, actually, in the same town that we've spent uh, winters in. And um, I remember sitting, it was around um, eight years ago on the same trip in the winter, sitting around a pool, kind of um, contemplating like what my future was. And at the time, I had a lot of individual online courses out there. Um, I think we had three or four. Uh, we had uh, this traffic school that I was talking about. We had a course called How to Start a Blog That Matters. I had another course on affiliate marketing. And um, it was just kind of getting to become, it was, it was becoming a lot to manage. Uh, different brands for each of the courses and so on. And, um, also, you know, at the time, this is when Netflix and, and some other uh, services were starting to come together where you paid one price and you got access to a whole lot of stuff. And, um, at the same time, I didn't really enjoy selling a super high priced product. And I think this is different for everybody. Um, you know, there are plenty of, um, businesses out there that sell online courses or coaching programs that are like, you know, two or $3,000 a month. And, um, sometimes those businesses make a lot of money, but for me, it was, it was kind of a tough sell. Um, I just felt like it was the price point was higher than I wanted to deal with. 
um, especially with the open and close model. Uh, when you're selling something like this, a lot of times you only have the cart open, uh, so to speak. People can only sign up for a limited period of time, several times a year, like maybe for a week or two. And partly the reason that you do that is because you can gen up a lot of, um, you know, interest. Bugs, interest and also to give people this sense of scarcity. Like if I don't get in now, I'm not going to get in, you know, for six months. So I got to make a decision now. And it's a, it's a really um, effective way to get someone to buy things. And that's why Amazon does it with Prime Day. And that's why Black Friday exists and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know, just something about it rubbed me the wrong way. And also it's a little scary when uh, your entire income is based on like two events a year. And you don't know if you're going to have a great year or if you're going to have like a so-so year. And like earlier when you were mentioning that you're one of those kinds of people that um, financial pressure gets to you a little bit, well, I'm the same kind of person. And it was stressful leading up to those launches and uh, wondering, is this going to be one of those that goes really well or is it not going to go so well? And I'm not going to know why necessarily. And um, every once in a while that happens, you know, and, and that can be a big swing. Like you might be expecting to sell six figures and you sell like, 30,000 or something. Well, where are you going to make up that additional $70,000? So because of all these reasons, because of having multiple courses, because of that pressure of the open and closed model, because of the high price points, all that kind of stuff, um, I started to conceive of an offering where we had a lot of different courses all under one roof. People pay, paid some sort of low monthly price and they got access to that. Um, and they got access to everything inside of there. And um, that also gave us the opportunity to work with some clients on a longer term because uh, helping people with businesses oftentimes isn't the kind of thing that you can really make a dent in like a month or two. You know, this is a long journey that that we're all on trying to build online businesses. And it can take a year or two or three for people to start to see traction. So um, Fizzle uh, is what we run now, and it's basically a combination of training, community, coaching, and support for people that are building online businesses. And we now have over 30 online courses in there, and uh, it's just really become this big library uh, sort of offering. And the cool thing about it is um, it's $39 a month, which um, makes me feel like we're giving people a tremendous value. And it also leads to recurring revenue, which is really nice um, because with recurring revenue, I can tell you pretty much within 5% what our monthly uh, income is going to be next month and the month after and so on, because it kind of follows a very predictable pattern based on how many people there are and how many people are uh, signing up or leaving in a given month. Yeah, and the other really cool thing about the the fizzle courses that you mentioned is that it's not you, it's not just you, right? Like you're bringing on experts in their field that are really well respected. Like I know you know you have Pat Flynn or John Lee Dumas teaching some of the courses, uh, and I'm sure that that helps you know bring some extra people to uh, the fizzle membership. You know they they have their audiences. Uh, but the one thing that I've often wondered with that is. How do you keep those courses current, right? Because Pat Flynn comes in and does a course on something. Well, Pat Flynn is a very busy guy. So it's not like you can bring him back every year to kind of like update that course. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then also, what is the benefit for that person who comes in and does a course for you guys? Like, do they get some part of the revenue? Like, how does that work? 
Yeah, great questions. Um, so, you know, keeping courses up to date is a struggle. Uh, and this is something that anyone who creates an online course, even if it's one, let alone 30, uh, has to think about because the moment that you put something out there, the clock starts ticking, especially if there's some sort of specific technology involved, right? Because all of that changes pretty quickly. So that's, that's a constant struggle. And, and you can, you can go about it in a couple of ways. I mean, one, you can, update a specific course. You know, if you have a course on growing your email list, then you can update that course every year or two and um, replace the lessons that need to be replaced with uh, more modern technology or showing the new uh, user interface and whatever the tool is that you're using. Um, Or you can kind of just add more courses um, in the future and, um, you know, maybe you don't exactly redo the course that you did. We also try to have some cornerstone cornerstone courses in there that don't really need to be updated because they're um, more foundational information that people need to have. But in terms of getting experts involved, uh, you know, it it would be a big ask for me to go back to people like Pat um, and others that um, contributed to Fizzle uh, in the early days um, because they're so busy these days. And, and you asked earlier, like, you know, how I got to know a lot of people um, even back then, Pat, you know, was incredibly successful, but nothing, you know, not like he is now eight years later or whatever. Um, in terms of how we got people involved, in some cases, uh, they did it as a favor because of something we had done for them previously. Uh, in other cases, they did it because um, it became a good affiliate opportunity for them. So, you know, we have an affiliate model for Fizzle. Uh, we pay anybody who refers us customers uh, 20% minimum ongoing commissions. But for someone who created a course, often we would offer them 50% or something. So that became a great opportunity for them. And if they contribute a course, they then are able to sell something with their face on it, but the customers are actually getting access to so much more. And we've had affiliates that have earned um, six figures on, on the Fizzle platform. Um, in other cases, like with Pat, uh, to be honest, I, you know, I think what happened was we ended up um, rebuilding his website in exchange for him doing a course for us. Um, my business partner, Chase Reeves, and I flew down there to San Diego and um, spent a few days with Pat um, strategizing and, and helping him come up with a, a new website design. And um, I don't think he's using that one now. It was the previous iteration. So there were all kinds of ways to do it. Um, rarely did we like just pay out of pocket for a course. It did happen occasionally, but usually we found some way to kind of barter and, um, and trade and it worked out pretty well. Um, and you know, by having a few experts involved, I think it just brings a lot more credibility to the platform and and people know that they're learning from the best of the best as opposed to learning, uh, everything from just one person. Yeah, you mentioned um, Chase Reeves, who is uh, hilarious. You know, if uh, anybody wants to hear him on the on the Fizzle podcast, I don't think he's on the Fizzle podcast as much anymore because he's got all the crazy YouTube stuff going on right now. But that was something else that I wanted to ask you about because this is something that's really unique for Fizzle, I think, that I haven't really seen anywhere else, at least myself, is that you work with a lot of other entrepreneurs, right? So you have Chase, you have Steph Crowder. Uh, I know Caleb Wojcik was at one point, yep. uh, not just, you know, creating courses for you guys, but like was literally part of the team. How do you 
how do you work with an entrepreneurial personality like that? Like, how did that relationship exist? And then like, what do you ever struggle with working with like entrepreneurs who have their own thing and you know their brand is always going to come first just do you mind like talking a little bit about that because i think that's really unique in in the way that uh the fizzle business is structured yeah uh and and those people that you mentioned um barrett brooks as well who's the um chief operating officer at convertkit now uh, they all have been part of the Fizzle team over the years, and um, I, I am still great friends with a lot of them, uh, or what, all of them, um, actually. And, um, you know, it, it's it's so fun to look and see, like, where their careers have gone and what they're doing. Um, at the time, when I hired each of them, um, they didn't necessarily have any big profile, you know, um, Caleb Wojcik, who now makes films for all kinds of people and, uh, works with Pat Flynn and others. Um, he, uh, had been a student in my traffic school program and that's how I got to know him. When I opened a position, he applied for it. And cause, because he had been one of the better students in there, it was an easy decision. Um, Steph Crowder didn't have a whole lot, uh, going online. She had been working for Groupon actually before, um, and all of these people had entrepreneurial dreams and ideas, but were kind of at the beginning stages. And, um, I think as an entrepreneur, uh, you can kind of make two decisions. I mean, one is you could try to find people who are going to be with you forever, uh, and just kind of be happy to, uh, you know, help you build your business, but maybe don't have the same entrepreneurial vision and you won't get necessarily the same kind of results from hiring those folks. By hiring people who are very entrepreneurial and, and encouraging them even to work on their own things, uh, you can expect that these people are going to come up with a lot more interesting ideas uh, and probably lead to a lot greater business results. And, and that was definitely the case with all of them. The downside is, of course, that eventually they'll probably lose those people to their own thing. And that's what happens in, uh, that's what happened in the majority of the cases. But, um, you know, if you're able to get three or four really great years with someone, um, I think that's great. That's longer than the average tenure of someone at Facebook, to be honest, you know, um, in Silicon Valley, even at the best companies, the average person sticks around for three years. And um, I think we've exceeded that. So it's worked out really well. And, um, you know, now I have, you know, thinking about those people, uh, I have just yet more great connections with people who are doing amazing things out there um, because I met them, you know, way back when, and they were just getting started. You just have to end up trying to have a really good eye for recognizing people who you believe are going to do something really exciting. And um, that's how you can connect with people who aren't necessarily A-listers because, you know, if you just reach out to your favorite uh, celebrity online crush and, you know, say, hey, can can we work together? They're going to be too busy. But if you can instead recognize people that are at your level or um, just slightly above or slightly below, but clearly have that thing that is going to take them places, you probably won't be right 100% of the time, but you'll be right enough that fast forward five years and suddenly you're going to have friends doing some really useful, um, interesting stuff. Are there any ways um, that you can like think about that you've like nurtured these people, right? Because you can say that like 
you maybe have an eye that you've selected these people that are doing interesting things and that you can almost put like a good bet on that, you know, they have a lot to bring to the table. But I'm sure that in working with Fizzle, you nurture them in a way and they learn a lot of things. Can you talk a little bit about like, like maybe some of those things that you think could have contributed to them going on to become successful? Yes. Um, several things. I mean, one is, um, basically being fully transparent about everything that's going on in the business. And, um, that way people have all the information that they need to be able to contribute to the business. I think when you're hiding some things, um, it can be difficult for people to feel like they have ownership and uh, a lot of times they can be flying blind and, and maybe not have access to everything they need to do their job. Uh, the second thing is just having trust in people and telling them that, um, you know, the best way you can contribute to this business is if you are able to impact this specific metric. You know, for example, like in an ongoing revenue business like us, uh, like Fizzle, um, one of the big things that we're always concerned about is called churn. And that's like the number of people that are leaving every month. So you, you might go to uh, someone on your team and say, you know what, uh, I want to try something. And that is, I want to put you in charge of churn and um, do whatever it is that you think you need. And if you need other resources in the company, other people to help out um, to do your job, let, let us know and uh, let's hear what your proposals are and, and then let them go off and become an expert in that space. Um, another thing is letting people pursue things that they're really interested in. You know, um, Steph Crowder was uh, really interested in starting a podcast that featuring mostly female entrepreneurs. And we helped her get um, Courage and Clarity off the ground, which is the show that she still runs today. So, you know, all of those things, I think it's really just about giving people autonomy, giving them the power to actually have an impact uh, and then, you know, throwing them in the water and, and letting them swim for themselves. And uh, that will really help them grow and mature. And, um, you know, being able to see all aspects of a business just makes somebody a, a really well-rounded entrepreneur. How do you work with um, your remote team, right? Like you just mentioned all the different people that are a part of your team. And I know that you have um, others along with that that help you run Fizzle. How do you, you know, and, and I know that they're all location dependent, they're all remote for the most part. How do you run your remote team? Like, what are some of your tips that you would say that you have found have been like really helpful in managing your team? Um, what are some of the cons that you've been able to solve? Just um, would love to hear your thoughts a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I would say, um, let me give like four specific tips. Okay. Um, the first is uh, to have a regular weekly meeting with everybody. All right. And maybe that's not revelatory to anybody, but uh, it's important. I think uh, a lot of times you can kind of um, let that fall by the wayside and then, you know, two or three weeks has gone by and you haven't talked to your team. And it's just really hard to feel like you're all working on the same page if you don't meet frequently. Um, so a uh, weekly meeting with everyone on the team. The second part of that would be um, to have one-on-one -on -one meetings. And those shouldn't just be between you as the business owner and each employee. They should also be between the other employees or people on the team uh, meeting with one another so that you can foster these relationships that are difficult to build in remote teams um, that can often just happen kind of naturally if you're all working in an office together. So meetings is the first thing. The second thing is to make sure that you have a great set of tools 
uh, where people can be online, um, you know, whenever they're working, uh, so that it's easy to reach one another. A uh, uh, common example of that would be Slack, right? Just something that people are participating in, so it's really easy to chat with folks. Um, and that also should extend to project management and just keeping track of all your documents and things that people are working on. So meetings, tools. Um, the second piece, uh, the third piece would be to make sure that you're not having offline conversations with people just because you both happen to be in the same city. Because if it turns out that, let's say you and I are on a team, Miko, and we uh, live in the same city. And so we're having all of these amazing brainstorming sessions and then nobody else is in on it. And um, it can start to really make people feel like they are not a full-fledged member of the team and uh, can create some jealousies and other things. So um, be careful of that. And so, you know, bring people in on Skype or whatever you need to do to make sure that people are involved. Um, let's see. Oh, and the last piece is to get together in person, um, as often as you can. I mean, it's not financially feasible to do it every month, but certainly at least once a year, maybe twice a year. Um, we most often, I think would try to do like every quarter or at least three times a year with people, um, and have them actually fly in, uh, either to where I was, um, or, uh, somewhere kind of neutral. Um, I've even had people come down, uh, we had the whole fizzle team here in Mexico one time. So um, those are important as well. If you don't get to see people in person very often, it can be tough to build like a really cohesive team. Now, um, a lot of us are using freelancers and consultants and, and things like that in addition to full-time employees. So, you know, you'll kind of have to decide uh, how you define the core team and so on. Um, but be careful about that as well. If, if somebody is really important to the team, but they're not invited to certain events, um, that can cause a bit of a wedge as well. So, uh, you know, I think you have to just put some thought into it. There are so many companies out there now that are fully remote. I mean, there are companies with teams of hundreds or thousands of people out there that are working remotely. So it's definitely possible. Um, you know, you just have to kind of research the best practices and, and, um, make sure that you're staying in communication as best you can. Another thing that we've done um, is to pay for people to have a co-working pass somewhere so that they're able to get out of the house. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy working at home, but I know that it can get monotonous after a while. And sometimes it's nice just to have somewhere, some co-working space to go to. Yeah, I think uh, that last point is it's really funny because it's one of those things that are it's almost like an extra, but I think can like really help you also feel like a valued team member. Like there's benefits other than like, you know, getting paid to that company. Um, like I know DHH and um, oh my gosh, I'm just blanking out on their base camp, you know, that company. I've read about their benefits, you know, what they offer to their employees. And I mean, the list just keeps going. You know, they give you gym access, they give you all these crazy things. And those are those really nice perks that, you know, make it, you know, reduce that churn that you talked about. Because even if it's not a membership, you know, they do have churn also within the company. Now, you mentioned um, documents within the company. Uh, and that's something that we like to talk um, about on this podcast as well as documentation and SOPs and systems. Um, what part do those play in uh, Fizzle and in running the different companies that you've run, um, if any? And what are some of the tips that you can give people that are just getting started or already have a small business online about creating systems and SOPs? 
Yeah. So um, we always talk about uh, what we call our company operating system. And, you know, that is basically just a, a definition of how we get work done on a annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, and daily basis. And um, that defines when we have strategy meetings, um, you know, how we set goals um, and so on. And as part of that, um, we also uh, think about documentation. Mostly we focus on documentation um, in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is anytime you're running some sort of an experiment in your business, um, let's say you are trying to improve uh, the conversion rate of your email list, like to get more people onto your email list. Um, a lot of times, you know, somebody will come up with an idea, hey, I think I can, you know, improve our uh, conversion rate. And then they go off and, and implement a bunch of things. And uh, a couple of months later, you say, hey, how is that project going? And they say, well, I, I tried a bunch of things and I'm not really sure like about the results and so on. So documenting for us what your hypothesis was like, okay, I believe that because we are doing X, we're getting Y as a result. So if I change it in this way, then I think we should be able to improve this metric writing all of that down and then writing down what you changed and on what day so that when you go back and look at your analytics, you can say, ah, I can see that this had an impact here so that later you're not like looking at your analytics and going, what was that spike or what was that dip? You know, that's, that's always the worst. So being diligent about um, when you're making changes, documenting those things and being clear about what it is that you are going to change and, and are hoping to have as an outcome. Um, the other thing that has been really useful to us, especially in positions that turn over um, frequently. So uh, we have used uh, our customer success position as a great way to get people into the business. And then a lot of times they move into other areas eventually. But that means that that position turns over fairly frequently. And so whoever is in that role, um, it, it's their job to document all the little things that they do, usually on video. And um, that way, whenever somebody's new to the job, they can just watch these videos, learn how to do everything. And if they forget a month from now, they can watch that video again and, and not necessarily have to take up a bunch of people's time in order to get up to speed. Uh, and we've done that, you know, in a number of areas, especially if it's something that you do infrequently. It's the worst when, you know, you do something once every six months and every time you have to kind of reinvent the wheel and it takes you days to get something done. So if you find yourself doing that, um, it's great to at least write it down, uh, write down what the steps are or create a checklist or something so that it's easy to follow the following time. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm the biggest, uh, like, that is a mistake that I always make when it comes down to like setting up hosting with new domains. Like I do it maybe once a year just because like, you know how it is. A new domain idea pops up and you buy it and you're like, oh, I want to try something out. And every time I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I don't need to write this down. And then every time afterwards, I'm like, okay, what is that customer support again? <laughs> like, let's get this going. Um, and I love that you compared it to a hypothesis because um, the whole SOP structure is a, as a hypothesis because with I used to study biotech in college, so I have a science background, I guess you can say, and that I, I totally agree. It's all about, okay, what is your hypothesis and what are the variables you're going to change every time that you test a hypothesis to get a new answer? Um, now, in wrapping up, 
you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but I do have to ask uh, one last question. And that's, you know, if you had to go back to the very beginning when you were getting started as an entrepreneur, whether that be if you feel like with Fizzle or the things that you're doing before, what is the one lesson that, you know, if you could go back and tell the younger, you know, your younger self, what would that lesson be? Uh, well, something that I've learned um, over the years is that most of your success will probably be determined by the market that you choose. And what that means is you can either make your life really difficult by choosing a market that is saturated, that has tons of competition, or a market that is impossibly small and really hard to find customers in, or something where you have to educate customers and like teach them something before, you know, they, they know how to use your product. Uh, you can make your life really difficult in those ways, or you can choose a market that is vibrant, that's growing, that's new and hot and interesting, where there's not necessarily a lot of competition yet. And you have a shot at being early so that you can become known as an expert in that space. That's the ideal scenario. And you see people, you know, of all kinds of um, capabilities working away really hard at businesses. And a lot of times, you know, you'll see two people who are pretty similar in terms of background, experience, abilities, um, mental state, all that kind of stuff. And yet one will be a lot more successful than the other. And that's oftentimes just because they were really smart about the market that they chose. So uh, I think it's easy to overlook that. We talk a lot about this concept um, online of Ikigai, which is this Japanese concept where uh, it's not just about what you're good at, but you're trying to find the intersection of what you're good at, uh, what the world needs, and what you can get paid to do. And I think that's really smart. Um, but uh, it really, really, your success will really depend on just the growth rate and the opportunities in the market that you choose. So don't just think about what you're passionate about. Um, I think people sometimes get a little too obsessed with that. And um, they think that the secret to happiness is doing something that you're passionate about. That is partly true. But if you are passionate about something and unable to earn an income at it, uh, it can become pretty miserable. And I've seen other people be fairly happy at something that you might think is mundane, but they're making a really good living and feeling like they're contributing something useful. Um, so just think hard when you go back. And, and I would give myself the same advice. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, working on things that just didn't have a, a fresh, hot, interesting market. And um, it can be tough to get traction. Well, Corbett, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. I can't think of a better way to end than on that note because I think that's really important. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about Fizzle, where can they do that? Uh, great place, since you're already listening to podcasts, is um, just head over to your podcast player and type in The Fizzle Show. You'll find our podcast about entrepreneurship and uh, we are on episode 360 something been doing it for like six years now. And um, you'll find uh, lately interviews with some amazing entrepreneurs. And uh, if you go back into the archives, you'll find um, a lot of in-depth conversations about the things that really matter in building businesses. Awesome. Yeah, I recommend the Fizzle uh, podcast. I listen to it quite often. Um, 
So again, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.